This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Ringgit and Sense is brought to you by Sun Life Malaysia. Good morning, you're tuned in to Ringgit and Sense, the show all about personal finance and I'm Sim Weeboon. Salam Ramadan to all our listeners and in conjunction with this festive season today, we're going to explore the topic of halal investments. We'll attempt to understand what it is and the underlying values behind it. Joining me to discuss this is Rafik Hidayat, he's the Managing Director for Wealth Vantage Advisory. Good morning and welcome to the show, Rafik. Morning, Sim. How are you? I'm good and I hope you are well too. Let's start off with uh, the big picture question, which is, in a nutshell, what is a halal investment? What makes an investment Sharia compliant? Okay, um, that's an interesting question to start off the discussion today. In in my line, we generally don't use the term halal investment. And there's a reason why we use the term Sharia compliant instead. When we talk about halal in general, uh, it's either white or black. It means it's either halal or it's haram. Okay. However, when we talk about Sharia compliance... Uh, it's in between. So it's, it can be 100% or it can be somewhere between 100% to 0%. Because instead of using or is it instead of being derived from the halal concept that we understand, especially with related to food, etc., sh- the Sharia compliance for finance or investments is actually derived from the concept of pure and impure water in Islam. And this is then use as a metaphor to understand Sharia-compliant investments. So in Islamic law, water is classified as pure or impure or najis based on its cleanliness, usage and ability to purify other substances. Likewise, investment can be classified as pure or impure based on their compliance with Sharia principles. This means that if you... uh, So one of the examples of pure water that we can use as Muslims to cleanse ourselves is seawater. Okay, seawater is accepted as one of the concept of pure water in Islam. So it means that we can use it to take our ablution so that we can pray. Um, But as we know, the sea is not clean. Seawater is not clean in itself because there... uh, you have feces, you have garbage, you have toxic, toxic uh, in in the seawater, etc. But uh, in Islam, because of the size of the sea itself or the ocean itself, so the amount of clean water is a lot more than the things that are impure. Okay, so and that is the principle or the concept behind Sharia compliant. So. Uh, if everybody understands that it doesn't have to be 100%, so it doesn't have to be pure, in halal, okay? So because there is a combination of uh, permissible and not permissible investments, okay? So how do we then ensure something is Sharia compliant? Okay, so we have regulatory bodies or financial institutions, so they would rely on what's called a Sharia advisory board or committees, okay? So these bodies generally consist of Islamic scholars, who are well-versed in Islamic jurisprudence and finance. They evaluate investment opportunities and determine their compliance with Sharia principles. So there are a few processes uh, that they use when they want to evaluate a Sharia compliance uh, for investment specifically. So one, they would do screening. So they will look at the activities, the products, the services to ensure that they do not violate any Islamic principles. Second is financial ratios. So there there are thresholds that cannot be exceeded. So if, for uh, example, companies with excessive debt or those that derive a significant portion of the income from non-compliant source- sources may be considered non-compliant. 
uh, ongoing monitoring. So Sharia Advisory Boards also continuously monitor the company's activities and financials to ensure compliance with the Sharia principles over time. And if there are any pure impure income generated from the Sharia compliant investments, it must be purified, typically by donating uh, the impure income to charity. So to sum up what I was trying to explain earlier, the concept of pure and impure water in Islam can be related to Sharia compliant investments by considering the nature of investments and the principles that they adhere to. Right, okay. What about the underlying values behind it, right? I came across terms like usuri, riba. Okay, so uh, the rules of Islamic finance generally it adheres to the broad principles of avoiding maizeh, which is gambling and speculation, along with gara, which is uncertainty, coupled with exploitation and unfairness. So what does it mean here that in Islamic finance, and especially investments, we are not supposed to take unnecessary risks, okay, so which is speculation, etc., uh, because we are also uh, supposed to be conserving or preserving our uh, assets, okay? Uh, and at the same time, when we talk about gara, so it's about exploitation. So in a, uh, in a sharia contract or investments, etc. So one party cannot take all the risks or one party cannot take all the profit. So it has to be balanced on both sides. Okay, so that's about Maizeh and Gara. But the central tenet of the Islamic financial system, which is neat, is actually the prohibition of riba. So, which is literally means an excess and it can be interpreted as an any unjustifiable increase of capital, whether in loans or sales. More precisely, any guaranteed increase in return tied to the maturity and the amount of principles, regardless of the performance of investment, would be considered riba and is strictly prohibited. So this then, what happens is it closes down the, the door to the concept of interest and precludes the use of conventional debt-based instruments. Because in the Islamic financial system, we actually encourage resharing, promotes entrepreneurship, discourage speculative behavior, and emphasizes the sanctity of contracts. So that is how I can explain the underlying values with which what you asked just now. But, but I want to focus in on this uh, interest topic, right? Because I think a lot of people might misunderstand it uh, or not have a full understanding of it, right? How does it apply to, like, say, when you're taking a loan and stuff like that, right? Because when you're taking a loan, the forthcoming notion is that there will be interest charged on it, right? So how does this then apply to Islamic financing? when we talk about Islamic finance, the most important part is what we call the akad. Akad or Sharia contract. So anything that is being done in Islamic finance, there is uh, a Sharia contract that is relevant to it. So we can't use one Sharia contract for everything. So let's talk about loans or in uh, Islamic finance, we call it financing. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we call it financing. Why we call it financing? Because technically, it's um, when, let's say, at me as a Muslim, I go to a bank and say, okay, I want to purchase a house. So what happens is that there is, um, there is an underlying uh, purchase of asset or commodities that is being uh, uh, utilized. So I will actually be purchasing that particular asset at a higher price, which I have agreed upon upfront. Okay, I've agreed upon upfront, which is a lot, which is, that is why instead of using the term interest for Islamic financing, we use the term profit because it's actually a sales and purchase agreement. So it means that the bank is actually charging me more for the profit, okay, which is actually part of the agreement. But the amount that I 
end up paying is actually at a discounted rate, which is called IBRA. So as long as I pay the monthly that is agreed, so the bank will continue to provide me the discount uh, that uh, they've already agreed upon upfront. So that the profit or the profit rate that they have uh, is already, they've already secured it. I, I know some, some people would argue and I used to, I used to do that before I started learning about all this and what's the difference between the normal conventional loans so that's okay. I think it's better for me to go for the Islamic financing. So why? Why is it better to go about this way? Okay. So I think one one of the biggest arguments for why somebody would go for Islamic financing instead of the conventional is actually your ceiling rate. Okay. Most people don't remember this because maybe they weren't old enough when that were then when that scenario happened. But the interest that people were paying on their conventional loans during the 97-98 financial uh, Asian financial crisis was uh, extremely high. So like we're talking about like housing loans now about three percent, four percent, or maximum five percent. But at one time, because during the crisis, it ballooned up to I think 11, 12, 13 percent. That's really high, right? But there are other countries in similar situations as well where the uh, interest rate has gone beyond that. Okay. However, in uh, Islamic financing contract, okay, so the ceiling profit rate has already been set. So example, let's say example, my own, my own uh, housing, uh, housing uh, financing. So the ceiling rate is stated as like 10.25%. Means that even if let's say the OPR actually goes up to even let's say 9%, 10%, 11%, the maximum that the bank can charge me on the profit rate is 10.25. Whereas there's no such limit in conventional uh, conventional loans. So it limits, remember what I was talking about? It limits excessive risk taking. So, so does that mean that there is a certain point where no matter how high the interest rate, the OPR rate goes, your loans won't be affected by it? Is that, is that how I would to understand it? Yes. Yes, that would be how you would. Yeah, of course, it. we're not expecting the OPR rates to go up to ten percent. Yeah, I mean, this is the the ceiling rate will obviously be maybe at a quantum where we all don't expect it to go up. But should it happens, right? The the reason why you would go this path is that it it protects you against that, right? Yes, it would it would it would stop the excessive profit taking or the risk uh, exposure that you you are facing. Okay, uh, like you said, uh, we we hope that it never gets to that situation, but we'll never know. It it did happen in 1997, Uh Would there be any scenarios or doomsday scenarios that would make it happen? Possibly. Right, okay. So we're going to go take a short break for some messages. Don't go anywhere because after this, we'll go dive into specifically what are the options out there for those that are interested in Sharia-compliant uh, investments. So don't go anywhere. Stay tuned. BFM 89.9. Stay tuned for Ringgit and Cents, brought to you by Sun Life Malaysia. Welcome back. You're tuned in to Ringgit and Cents. I'm Sim Weeboon. And today's topic is a look at Sharia compliant investments. Previously, before the break, uh, my guest today, Rafiq Hidayat, who is the Managing Director for Wealth Vantage Advisory, was telling us about the definition behind it, some of the values behind it, what encompasses a Sharia compliant investments. But now, Rafiq, I want to ask you, right, what are the options out there? So basically, when we talk 
about the options available for for investments. The options available now for Sharia compliant investments is more widespread compared to before. Okay, so you can easily find now options for Sharia compliant unit trusts either both uh, in the local market or in the global market. Uh, similarly, for stocks and equities, uh, you also have term deposits, which is the or general investment accounts, which is the uh, Sharia compliant version of uh, fixed deposits. Uh, you have uh, Sharia compliant exchange traded funds or ETFs. Uh, uh, you can also invest in Sharia compliant FCPOs, so future coupon palm oil. Sukuk, uh, which is the Sharia compliant equivalent of bonds, uh, gold or commodities in general, uh, Sharia compliant. There, you also have options for Sharia compliant equity card funding, P2P financing, among many others. Okay, so there's, there's a lot of options now and we're limited by time, but maybe I just want to focus on some of the more, not to say common, but I think when you talk to someone, it's, it's most likely that they'll bring it up, right? Maybe we can start with funds like unit trust. How are they considered Sharia? How are they different from the conventional and typical ones out in the market right now? Okay, so when you talk about a unit trust, a unit trust fund, so a unit trust fund is actually a combination depending on the type of fund itself. So you might have funds that are structured based on stocks. There yeah, you have uh, funds that are structured based on fixed income, or you might have a balanced fund that is a combination of uh, stocks and uh, fixed income, uh, which is suko, etc. Okay, so. What makes a, a unit trust Sharia compliant is actually based on its underlying assets. So means that so if let's say a Sharia compliant unit trust fund, uh, let's say in equity, would have uh, Sharia compliant stocks or equities that is part of it. Means that the individual uh, Sharia the individual equities or stocks that uh, the asset manager or the fund manager has invested in for that particular fund, for that particular mandate, has already been uh, verified as being Sharia compliant. Okay, it's already been uh, verified as Sharia compliant and then is part of that Sharia compliant unit trust fund. Okay, but at the same time, even though it's as such, so I also mentioned earlier that there's also the Sharia advisors. So the Sharia advisors for that particular unit trust fund is supposed to monitor to ensure that uh, continuously the uh, shares uh, or equities that are uh, being included in the fund is always meeting the Sharia compliance thresholds. Okay, because if not, then they would have to then do the process of removing them and replacing them with different uh, Sharia compliance stocks. So that's, that's an example. So it's the same thing for Sukho or money market. So the underlying assets for the Sharia compliant unit trust funds must be Sharia compliant themselves. Okay, so let's talk about these underlying assets, right? Specifically focusing mm -hmm. like maybe on stocks and equities, right? I mean, do we know other categories for uh, Sharia compliant equities? What, how, how can one identify uh, a Sharia compliant stock? So it's really, uh, in Bursa Malaysia, it's actually very easy because... Uh, the Securities Commission actually uh, shares a list uh, every May and November every year where they actually go through the list of the listed uh, uh, listed companies and identify which ones are Sharia compliant and which ones are not. So Securities Commission 
uh, itself does this, and uh, this is actually being followed by Bursa Malaysia. Okay, so but if we want to go a bit deeper uh, into the uh, methodology that is being used, so the Suhan, the uh, SC's uh, Sharia Advisory Co uh, Committee or Council actually adopts a two-tier quantitative approach which applies the business activity benchmarks and financial ratio benchmarks in determining the Sharia status of listed securities. Okay, so as long as uh, the listed company or securities fulfill this, then they'll be considered Sharia compliant. Okay, so the first part, which is the business activity benchmark. So the contribution of Sharia non-compliant activities to the group revenue and group profit before taxation of a company will be computed and compared against the relevant business activity benchmark as follows. So there are two benchmarks that they use for the business activity benchmarks. So that means... Uh, for the business activity benchmarks, the contribution uh, to the group revenue or group profit before taxation cannot exceed these two benchmarks. If not, then it will be considered uh, non-Sharia compliant. So one is what they call the 5% benchmark. So 5% benchmark means that the income or the revenue or the profit before taxation cannot include conventional banking conventional insurance, gambling, liquor, liquor-related activities, pork, pork-related activities, non-halal food, beverages, sharia, non-compliant entertainment, tobacco, tobacco-related activities, interest income from conventional accounts and instruments, dividends from sharia, non-compliant investments, and other activities deemed non-compliant according to the sharia principles as determined by the Sharia Advisory Council. So, cannot exceed 5%. Okay, so this is the first, first part, which is the list. So, because as you notice with this list, these are all uh, items that would be considered non-halal or non-non uh, uh, generally non-halal or non-non-compliant. Okay. However, there's also this thing called a twenty percent benchmark. Okay. So this twenty percent benchmark uh, is not specifically for items that are clear-cut, similar uh, like the list above. So, but there are some. Um, gray areas with regards to this. So, example, share trading, stockbroking business, rental received from Sharia non-compliant activities. So, these uh, things that, okay, uh, the company or the income that the company derives from those cannot exceed the 20% benchmark. But this is only one part, which is the revenue. The second part with regards to this is what we call the financial ratio benchmarks. Okay, the financial ratio uh, benchmarks uh, takes into account two items only, which is the cash over total assets and the debt over total assets. Okay, so for this, uh, each for each of this ratio, which is intended to measure RIBA or RIBA-based elements within a company's statements of a finance position, they must be less than 33%. Okay, in and in order for a company on Bursa, to be Sharia compliant, they actually have to fulfill both benchmarks. If not, then they will be excluded from being a Sharia compliant security. So what are then the pros and cons when you're considering Sharia compliant investment? So I, I guess uh, how I would explain it for uh, the, the listeners out there is when we talk about Sharia compliance, generally we also, if you if you look at the threshold or the criteria, etc., is generally related or they're actually trying to not involve themselves in activities that can potentially create uh, maybe social situations, etc., that 
can be not beneficial to an individual or community or country. So example, like things like gambling, liquor, pork, etc. So depending on how you how you look at it. Okay. So which is actually not, it doesn't move far from the theme that everybody's talking nowadays with regards to investment, which is ESG. Uh, there is a clear intersection uh, between ESG and Sharia compliant investments. So if you're one of those that are interested in the ESG teams, things like that. So most probably you will go towards uh, Sharia compliant investments versus somebody who's just interested in pure returns, then you would stay with the conventional investments. It's not to say that uh, Sharia compliant investments are not giving you the returns. And to be honest, if you look from a return profile, uh, if you plan your finances properly, the return, the average return that you need on a yearly basis is just is actually just between seven to eight percent a year. Okay, anything more than that is considered excessive already. It means that you're taking unnecessary risks, which would expose your uh, wealth or your assets that you invested to more risk, which then uh, lead to potentially more losses. Okay, whereas from a uh, Islamic uh, or Sharia compliant point of view. Uh, the uh, while the returns might be lesser, but the risk that an investor takes is actually much lower because they are not exposed to the excessive risk-taking industries. Then lastly, then I want to ask is that like, what do you think are the common misconceptions that come with Sharia-compliant uh, investing? I think some of the misconceptions that, uh, that people have or the questions that people asked me before was, okay, first, can non-Muslim participate? Yes. Uh, Non-Muslims can invest in uh, Sharia compliant investments. There's no law that says you can't. Can Muslims themselves uh, make non-Sharia compliant investments? If they want to, they can. Whether they should, uh, in my view, they should not. Is there any law stopping them from doing so? There's not. It's not like uh, buying alcohol where it's actually stated, okay, so if you're Muslim, you cannot purchase alcohol, drinks, etc. There is no specific law or regulations or act that says a Muslim cannot purchase non-Sharia compliant investments. Uh, would the laws about Sharia compliant investment differ from country to country? Yes, they probably differ. Uh, however, as far as I know, I haven't heard of any country that has a specific law that stops Muslims from investing in non-Sharia compliant products. And we've reached the end of our show today. That's all the time we have for Ringgit and Cents. I've been speaking to Rafiq Hidayat. He's the Managing Editor for Wealth Vantage Advisory. Join us again next week for more discussions on personal finance. We have the 10am News Bulletin coming up next, followed by Enterprise. I'm Sim Weeboon from The Morning Run, BFM 89.9. Ringgit and Cents is brought to you by Sun Life Malaysia your lifetime insurance and takaful partner. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.